Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have with us a great guest. David Shield is the executive director of the PCBAA, the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. Now, you might say, Printed Circuit Board Association of America, NucleCast, what are those two things doing together? Well, uh, as you, some of you may recall, we're doing this thing called modernization of the nuclear triad, and we're taking our NC3 system from an analog system to a digital system, and all of those things require advanced electronics. And as many of you may know, Taiwan in part is really important to the United States because they're the number one manufacturer of advanced circuits, advanced chips in the world. And of course, we there was this piece of legislation passed recently called the CHIPS Act, which is designed to reduce our dependence upon overseas manufacturing of, of advanced electronic components, specifically the CHIPS. But David is going to talk about this three-layer stack that is really sort of the central component of all of these new systems. It's, you know, it's sort of in everything. And with that, David, welcome to the show. Adam, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on NucleCast. And, you know, this is a topic we have never discussed before. It's a, it's a new topic for NucleCast. But as we think through this, you know, end-to-end modernization, that's weapons, delivery systems, communication systems. It, you know, it's, it's huge. This is, in fact, one of those critical components. So tell us a little bit about the CHIPS Act and why is it really important for nuclear modernization? Absolutely, Adam. So there is a consensus now that we need to make more of the things that we invent in this country right here on our own shores, right? The lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic of a lot of supply chain shortfalls that we've had in both the commercial and defense sectors have taught us that there is an unacceptable dependency on foreign sourcing for critical minerals, critical microelectronics, critical technologies more broadly. And so the CHIPS Act was, I think, an important first step, an investment by the government in policies that said we need to make more high-tech electronics here in America. And of course, those electronics end up in everything that we use, right, from the electric shaver in your bathroom to maybe the electric car in your driveway to the electric drive on any number of uh, aerospace or defense systems. You know, we are living in a world powered by modern microelectronics, but we are also extremely dependent, I think more dependent than most Americans realize, on foreign sourcing, foreign supply chains, and in some cases, supply chains that stretch into adversarial or unfriendly locations. And so the CHIPS Act was this move to say, hey, we've shrunk to 13% of market share when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing. Semiconductors power the modern world. 
we need to make a further investment there. So there's a $52 billion program administered by the Department of Commerce, and it gives semiconductor manufacturers, large and small, the opportunity to come back to America. And they are coming back in droves. You see investments in states like Ohio, New York, Texas, California, Arizona, and that $52 billion in government money, it's been matched by more than $400 billion, B with a billion, in private investment as well. So public action leads private investment. That's one of the key takeaways of the CHIPS Act. But as we're going to talk about today, chips don't float. They're part of a broader microelectronics ecosystem, and we've got to make further investments and enact further public policies to truly build a secure and resilient supply chain and an ecosystem that's based right here in America. Okay, so you say there's, you know, in, chips are great, semiconductors important, but it's more than that. So, so what is the rest that's sort of the critical part of that? Sure. When we talk about a, a modern microelectronics stack, uh, if you were to crack open, again, your garage door opener, uh, your microwave, your cell phone, anything, what you would find is a semiconductor, a brain inside, but connected to a central nervous system, right, is part of a three-part stack. The semiconductor, what we call advanced packaging uh, or IC substrate packaging, and then that would be mated to a printed circuit board. Now, most people have seen what looks like a green piece of plastic inside almost any electronic device. It's not plastic, right? It's actually a complex uh, mix of resin, uh, critical um, precious metals like uh, gold, uh, woven glass, any number of things engineered, sandwiched together. A lot of manual, chemical, and automatic processes are at work there. Most boards are custom-made for that end-use application, right? So the board that's in a Spy 6 radar doesn't look anything like the board that's in an uh, Amazon Echo Dot, but boy, both things need that printed circuit board to work. So the chips that we're making are doing incredible computing. But in order to actually make the device run, any device, whether it's in the strategic defense portfolio or whether it's in your kitchen, it needs that printed circuit board. And, you know, printed circuit boards invented here in America, manufactured at a very large scale here in America for a long time. But it's the story of the last uh, three decades. A lot of offshoring, uh, a lot of movement overseas due to market forces. And, you know, now we've got, unfortunately, an unacceptably, and I think risky, slice of the pie made here, which is why we've got to bring the entire stack back, right? The CHIPS Act is a first step on one part of a three-layer stack. And so as, you know, as people try to sort of envision in their head, you know, they sort of understand why semiconductors are important. They know that this is, you know, they're, they're manufactured, you know, TSMC, I think is the world's largest manufacturer. You know, I'm, my family's from Arizona and so they're, they're building new facilities back in the East Valley. Like, you know, whenever I was young, you know, the East Valley Mesa, there was, you know, these huge plants, Intel plants that manufactured this. And then they went away and all those engineers at Intel lost their jobs and went and did other things. And now they're coming back. And I guess, could you maybe explain sort of the geopolitics of this, like, why is this so important? And, and, you know, the Chinese are trying, they don't actually manufacture them. They're largely, you know, component assemblers. And, uh, you know, do they manufacture the, the circuit boards? To, uh, Cause I know for semiconductors, they don't have sort of the, the manufacturing acumen to, to do, to build them. But what about the circuit boards? Can they build those? 
Absolutely. And I think that you, when you look at where modern circuit board production is, is going on, there is a great deal of it in Asia. There's a specific concentration, obviously, in, in China. I think what you have now, though, is a recognition that we need to rebalance that portfolio. And I'll give you some of the numbers of, of how things look and then what the federal government has been doing. In the year 2000, the U.S. made about 30% of the world's pr pr printed circuit boards, going into, again, every application you can think of, earthbound, spacebound, afloat, undersea, everything that we need, you know, uh, let's say for our strategic portfolio or more broadly for our aerospace and defense portfolio, needs a print circuit board, we're going to make it. That 30% of the world's supply coming out of the United States in 2000 has shrunk to 4% of the world's supply in 2023. In real terms, that's 2,200 companies making printed circuit boards in the year 2000, down to about 150 companies today. This is a recognized problem by the Department of Defense, by the Department of Commerce, and most recently by the White House. Um, some of your listeners may be familiar with the Defense Production Act, right? Uh, a, a bill or a statute, really, that allows the government to say, this is a critical technology. We're going to cut a lot of the red tape. We're going to speed the acquisition of these technologies. You saw it for ventilators during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, in March, the president announced that we were going to invoke the Defense Production Act for printed circuit boards and IC substrates. And that was a recognition at the highest levels of government that we can't make any of the things we need without PCBs, and we're not making enough of the world's supply here in the United States. So problem recognized, and we're starting to walk down that road towards a solution. So as, as we think about the electronics that are going to go into you know, weapons and delivery vehicles, you know, what, what would be different about this stack? If, if it's a, you know, like a cot stack that may be made in Asia or whatever versus, you know, a, a stack that is made, you know, here in the U S is, is there going to be a, a difference? I mean, we moved all that production overseas, for cost, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's sort of like steel where it was cheaper to mine the raw material, put the raw material on ships, ship it to Japan. The Japanese make steel, then ship it back to the U S that was cheaper than just man, doing the end to end process near where you mined it. And so I would assume it, you know, it's probably somewhat similar uh, for chips and circuit boards that, you know, it's cheaper to send stuff to to Taiwan or South Korea or wherever and then ship all that back. But so as we think about moving it back, what are we going to get for having moved it back as opposed to sort sure. of the way it is now? That's a great question. And you're correct. There are many analogies uh, in other industrial sectors that would say, why did we go overseas and why do we come back in a reshoring capacity? And I can speak to that a little bit. Certainly, we participate in a global economy. Nobody's ignorant of that. Nobody is trying to undo uh, you know, three decades of, of globalization. I think what we see is right factories being built, ground being broken all over the country to make semiconductors. When we talk about a trusted, secure, and resilient supply chain, is it meeting that standard to make a new chip in Arizona in New York, in Ohio, ship it to the port of Long Beach so it can go back overseas to get made it up with a foreign produced printed circuit board, to get made it up with advanced packaging right in Asia, to then come back across the ocean. Um, we saw all kinds of shortfalls. We saw all kinds of empty store shelves and people waiting on their trucks and cars 
during the pandemic when supply chains got interrupted. And whether that interruption is man-made, whether it's geopolitical in nature or a natural disaster, a lot of those interruptions cause real harm and real havoc to the end user. Now, when the end user is a man or woman in uniform, right, that's a significant problem. We've always recognized in this country that to make the things that we need to defend ourselves, to make the things that are part of our national security apparatus, we need to have trusted, secure, reliable domestic supply chains. And I'm glad you mentioned COTS, right? Because we have identified as an industry the fact that while many microelectronic components are ITAR controlled, made in the United States, bespoke for those end-use defense applications, there's a great deal of commercial off-the-shelf technology that sort of makes it under that fence because it's in that COTS category. But when you start looking down the supply chain and you say, well, where are the microelectronics in these COTS products coming from? Well, they're not always coming from friendly sources. And so one of the things that we've worked with elected officials to do is put language in the National Defense Authorization Act that says by 2027, the Pentagon has to have a plan to secure its COTS microelectronic supply chains. They need to be able to say that even that commercial off-the-shelf technology comes from trusted, reliable, and secure sites. And that was a, you know, kind of a blind spot that existed until now and uh, a, a good legislative fix, even though it's still still a few years away. Yeah, I mean, isn't one of the big concerns with, you know, all of these components that are made overseas, the the, the issue is that, you know, there might be malicious code or there might be, you know, backdoors, th- you know, things of that nature sort of, sitting on them waiting, you know, to be activated, you know, in the time of war by the Chinese, you know, some, something to that effect is, is that, and then versus building them domestically where we, we naturally assume, you know, something like that wouldn't happen. So right now, if you look at any, you know, critical national security application, the department of defense is looking at members of our industry for trust and secure solutions. Why do we say we want to look at those factories, we want to look at those personnel, we want to look at those supply chains and be sure? Because you're right. You know, there are threats that are looming out there. Uh, There is a natural desire to have, first, the domestic capacity, but second, the fact that you can look at any component inside of any critical system and say, I know where this was designed. I know where this was built. I know what is and is not on it. And I know that when I need it, I can depend on it. And we're doing that to a large extent right now. But the commercial market, for example, has fallen off so much uh, on our side of the aisle that it makes sustaining the defense market a bit of a challenge. The Department of Defense recognizes this. Um, you know, and, and directly, yes, we need to be able to trust in some of these critical applications. I mean, when you talk about things that are in our strategic portfolio, um, things that have to work every single time in very difficult environments, right, in very dynamic environments, we can make those technologies in the United States when it comes to microelectronics. Um, but we need to make sure, again, as you look down that entire supply chain, that we can say, to your point, with certainty, I know where this is coming from. I know I can rely on it. I know I can depend on it. And I don't think we're there yet. I think we're walking towards that status. So we're at that time in the show where, where we have to take a quick break. Now, when we come back, what I want to to get from you is sort of, you know, we, we've talked about some of the supply chain issues, but what are the other benefits? Can we make them in the U.S. cheaper? Can we make them better? Is, the, is it, you know, is it better quality? Is it, 
you know, what are those, what would be the other benefits? And particularly as you put it in the context of modernization of our strategic triad. So you're listening to Nuclecast. And this is your host, Adam Wilder. And we've got David Shield from the PCBAA, the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. I, I didn't. I didn't screw up the name, so I'm you proud nailed of that. it. You nailed it, Adam. <laughs> we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking, Dave, thanks for being here. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an interesting topic and, you know, it's one that I don't really think about, you know, I've got a copy of the book, Chip Wars. And oh, great. I, Chris I, Miller nailed it with that book. I love Chip War. Well, see, I haven't read the book yet. So what I did <laughs> is I, I, I did a, a double favor for, for the author and I, got an audio version and I'm hoping that if I don't read the book, I'll listen to it on audio book, but, but it's clearly a problem. And so before the break, my question was, what are the advantages? I mean, are prices going to go way up because so, we've moved it back? Go ahead. No. And, and, and here's the provision that we're chasing, right? The government's there's two things going on, right? One is innovation and one is manufacturing capacity. So let's talk about innovation first. We all understand that whether it's AI applications, whether it's modernization of our triad, uh, we have to invent the technologies we're going to depend on here in the United States. We want to invent those technologies. We have the intellectual capital. We have the capability to research and design and build those capabilities. We need to do it here. You don't want to de be dependent on those sorts of systems from foreign or adversarial uh, sourcing. You're not just inventing a new generation of semiconductor. People talk in terms of nanometers. Uh, what the processing power of a chip is. Of course, we can think about the modernization needs that we have in the triad, and we can think about the chips that are going to power those systems. Well, guess what? Advanced chips need advanced packaging, and they need advanced printed circuit boards. The chip of tomorrow doesn't have an IC substrate or a board yet invented because it hasn't been invented, right? There's a whole innovation sort of pipeline that has to happen. I don't think it makes a lot of sense for an Intel or a TSMC to be financially incentivized to invent the technologies we're going to depend on here in the United States and then turn around and say, well, this is the brain, but everything in the body is going to be sourced overseas, is going to be invented overseas. We don't need to do that. We can make a similar incentive here in the United States. So that's the innovation side of it. And when you talk about cost and is this actually sustainable, we've got a bill in Congress, the Protecting circuit boards and substrates or PCBs act, right? Our version of chips that does two things. First, it does a $3 billion allocation for direct investment. Let's hire new people. Let's train them. Let's build facilities. Let's get the machine tooling that we need to build the next generation of PCBs. And 3 billion, obviously a fraction of what the CHIPS Act costs. But the more important provision in that legislation, which has bipartisan support, I might add, is a 25% tax credit on the purchase of American PCBs. Boy, is that a game changer if you're Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, 
and you're filling all of these orders with printed circuit boards, now American PCBs are cost competitive under that tax credit. So we are not looking for a handout. This is not corporate welfare by any definition. I think you would look at the companies doing this sort of work and say, we can't afford to lose them any more than we could afford to lose a military engine maker, any more than we could afford to lose a space launch provider. There's plenty of examples, Adam, in industrial policy and defense industrial policy specifically, where we invest in making sure we can do it in the United States because we need to do it here and because there's potentially a surge or a crisis capacity that we might need to have. I don't think it's any different with microelectronics. Yeah, I mean, you, you said something that sort of got me thinking, and and I wonder if we're not, and I don't know the answer to this, so maybe you do, if we're not actually manufacturing, you know, PCBs, for example, are we still investing in, you know, the next generation technology, or because we don't manufacture them, do we just say, ah, you know... The let the let the Koreans figure out, or the Taiwanese, or whoever does manufacture them, let them figure out what the next generation of you know printed circuit board should look like. I mean, is there, or or are we still doing all the research and then just shipping the research to who to whoever ends up manufacturing it? What a great question! You know, our chairman uh, Travis Kelly often says innovation is co-located with production, where you find us making PCBs. You find us designing, refining, and improving the next generation of printed circuit boards. So to, to directly answer your question, if the factories aren't here, the R&D is not here. And there is the ability globally now to make very high-quality printed circuit boards. But the next generation, that I think we have an interest in inventing here in America and then manufacturing here in America as well. So what does – because, I mean, I – you know, I've – there's a, a – it's truly a great museum – at the Defense Nuclear Weapons School out at Kirtland, and it's Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. And, you know, it's a classified museum, so it's not open to the public. But when you go in and you, you can see all of these previous weapons that have been in the U.S. arsenal, and you see the circuit boards over time that have been in all of them, and I, I sort of wonder, just from thinking back to the last few times I've been to the museum and looking at these systems and thinking about, you know, the the inventions of many of these. I, I, I mean, I can imagine the circuit boards, the chips, the all this stuff was invented because they had to build things that could that would work well in a nuclear weapon. And so I wonder, you know, how might bringing back this manufacturing to the U.S. lead to new innovation and sort of, you know, just things we haven't even thought about yet as we try to build maybe smaller weapons, weapons that are more reliable, that are more accurate, all of those kinds of things. And then, you know, how that sort of second and third order effect as, you know, something that, is, you know, maybe is invented at Sandia or invented in cooperation with, you know, manufacturing, because, you know, there's always all this collaboration that goes on between weapons labs and companies. And and then just what are those second and third order effects in how we have, you know, better widgets across the, you know, across the spectrum? This is such a great discussion topic because we can't talk about modernization without innovation and invention. 
right? We say we want to modernize our force, right? And we say that we want to make sure that um, everything that we depend on in the triad and elsewhere has the latest technology sets. The Department of Defense recognizes the level of innovation that has to happen for us to, to meet that standard, right? And I give a lot of credit to folks like Bill LaPlante and Dev Shinoy and others who, you know, have designated uh, an executive agent for printed circuit boards who sits at Crane in Indiana, uh, who have put money towards rapid prototyping and innovation. In fact, the Defense Production Act invocation, we are now trying to tie to a $100 million appropriation that would allow the Pentagon to actually go out and invest in next generation printed circuit boards. Think about the environments that we have to operate in, right? Undersea, at space, high temperature, high speed, extremely high computing power, um, lots of concerns, right, about weight, about the ability to operate in very challenging environments. And our engineers can meet those standards. They can work with the semiconductor industry. They can work with the OEMs, with the primes who are bringing these, these, these systems online to produce this. But there's a lot of innovation that has to happen concurrently. And I, I just can't imagine this, this modern world that we're envisioning, right? The, the 21st or, or even 22nd century portfolio of strategic systems, it's not going to happen without a great deal of innovation. And you're right. When you go through these, through these museums and you see boards that were five times as big as they are now, right? things have gotten smaller, things have gotten faster, things have gotten lighter, and it has been an iterative process. A lot of it happening in the facilities in the United States. And again, credit to the DOD, a lot of it fostered by their pushing, you know, mission demands on our engineers and, you know, our guys and gals showing up to meet that demand. Yeah. So, you know, we're getting to the point in the show where I like to pull out my, my genie in my little, you know, he's in my bottle here. His name's Bob. And I, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to make three wishes and for you, those three wishes have to be related to chips and printed circuit boards for, for the nuclear enterprise. So if you get three wishes on that topic, what are those three wishes? Well, I, look, I'm going to start with the obvious one first, which is I want to see public policies that foster innovation in microelectronics so that as we modernize our strategic portfolio, the microelectronics we need are there. So my first wish as I rub that lamp is let's pack the – let's pass – the PCBs Act out of Congress, right? Let's get a bill to the president's desk that incentivizes first, new investment in the industry, and second, brings in a demand signal, brings in a reason to buy in America. And I think if you talk to companies today, they'll say, I want to reshore, I want to shorten my supply chains. I am sure if you are part of modernizing the triad, you really want to be close to home, right? You want to have these manufacturing nodes. You need them. You're required to build them that way. And so, you know, I guess my first wish would be let's let's pack, pass the PCBs Act. You know, I think my second wish has to do with our workforce. We talk a lot about uh, an aging national security workforce, an aging manufacturing workforce. And there is this question of where is the next generation of workers going to come from? This is not a challenge that our industry is immune from any more than, than Silicon Valley is, any more than uh, automakers are. We need to train and bring up the next generation of signal integrity engineers, computer scientists, electrical engineers. Everybody that is working in our industry is focused on the mission, right? And what you would find is that a lot of those folks are closer to retirement than they are to the start of their career. So I would rub that lamp and say, let's build a pipeline of talented young men and women who understand that they're serving a very important enterprise, 
understand that they're on the front line of innovation, and perhaps most importantly, understand that this is a career, right? Supplying our national security apparatus with critical microelectronics is something you can do for an entire career. And I think feel proud of and patriotic about the work that you're doing. So, you know, that would be my my second wish, I think. Um, and then, you know, the third thing, if, if I could, would be an awareness. And this is, you know, this is the, the, the sort of pie in the sky wish, but we like to say that we educate, advocate, and legislate at the PCBAA. And I would love to get to a place where Americans, where public policymakers, where journalists, where the national security community appreciates the role that, that microelectronics beyond the chips play. Over the last two or three years, and chips was really a 40-month journey, Adam, we have gotten a broad understanding of the importance of semiconductors. I think every American now knows that, hey, chips are really important. Chips power everything in my modern life. Certainly, the national security apparatus has known this for a long time. If you're part of the triad, you know whether you're on a Columbia class submarine, whether you're on a B-52, uh, you know whether you're whether you're sitting in a silo, you you know about the importance of microelectronics. I would love for Americans more broadly to say, oh, chips chips don't float. We got to have packaging. We got to have printed circuit boards. And oh yeah, I understood that we moved semiconductor manufacturing overseas, and we're kind of dependent on Asia for it now. I had no idea that the rest of the stack was in a similar place. So, you know, when the genie's talking to me and he's like, okay, last wish, buddy, here we go. It's awareness. It's education because that's how you get to public policy. That's how you get to change. That's how you get to solutions. Yes. And let me just ask one or two final questions. And and so what is the, like, if we bring all of this manufacturing back, what would its value be? You know, it's, it's economic value. And then, how many jobs might we expect? Because one of the big challenges, you know, is if you look at the majority of college students, they're in, you know, non-technical fields, their aspirational goals, you know, if they do work for a technical company, they want to go work for Google or they want to work for Meta. They want to be in social media. They don't really aspire educationally. And then when they do have the educational requirements to then work for the types of companies that do this. So if it has great value, which you're going to tell me, I would assume, and, and then we could, you know, how would we get people to choose, you know, chip manufacturing, circuit board manufacturing, as opposed to, you know, working for Google or Meta or, or Instagram or, you know, whatever else. You know, I think there's a couple of things that, that we have to do. Um, we we are talking about an industry that is tens of thousands of employees in the United States. So we think about 15,000 people making boards, uh, roughly $15 billion in economic impact today. I can't speculate as to, you know, what the upper limit of that industry is. But think, again, go back to our, our where were we in, in the year 2000? We, were, we had 30% of market share. So it was certainly tens of billions of dollars more in economic impact uh, and of course, many thousands more jobs. So I think when we talk about a manufacturing resurgence in America, there's no state that is probably um, not a good location to to do this kind of work. And um, I think that the economic growth you're seeing from the Chips Act, right? New factories in South Carolina, in New York, uh, in Texas, in California, in Arizona, in Ohio. Right down the road, you should have the rest of the stack. Right. Yeah. It's analogous to the auto industry. Right. When we were putting the cars together in Detroit, we were making the wiper blades. We were making the brake pads. You know, we were making uh, the airbags right down the road in places like Indiana, Ohio. So 
I think we need to have a manufacturing node for the entire microelectronics ecosystem, right? Let's build that chip in America. Let's made it up with advanced packaging. Let's made it up with a board right down the road. And let's see the sort of snowball effect that that kind of uh, investment has. Um, and, and the raw economic impact is there. Of course, politicians understand that and they want to see, you know, uh, the investment spread across their districts. That's, that's no secret. But the national security community, right, and a lot of your listeners probably understand that there's a different capacity issue. We have to be able to have a trusted, secure, and resilient supply chain. The goals that we have for modernization, the goals that we have for every system that's going to come online in the next five to 10 years and then serve our country for decades beyond that, it requires a pretty significant industrial base. And this isn't a story that we're telling for the first time, whether we've you know, talked about, again, space assets, whether we've talked about fighter aircraft, whether we've talked about you know our armored force on the ground, there's always this look down the supply chain to say, are we making it here? Can we sustainably make it here for the long term? Are we going to have the parts that we need? You talked about the engineers. Are we going to have the brain power that we need? This is not a question we can escape as we talk about you know triad modernization or strategic systems. We've got to have the same satisfactory answers, and I think we've got a lot of smart people working on that problem. Yeah. Yeah, great conversation. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. David, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on, talking about a new topic that we haven't talked about before. Hopefully, our listeners will say, "Hmm, I hadn't thought about that." If we can get them to think uh, think about new topics, that's uh, certainly what we're hoping to do. So, thanks for thanks for coming on, Adam. Great work you guys are doing here. Uh, you know, really appreciate the chance to talk about our part of it. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast, and we will see you on the next episode. Well, David Shield, it was it was an interesting conversation. I hadn't really I mean, I you know, I'm familiar with Chip Wars. I've got the book. I've got the audio book because I'm into uh, I figured I'd listen to it when I'm at the gym. But I hadn't thought quite as much about printed circuit boards. And so it was interesting to listen to him sort of talk about how important they all are together and just sort of that, you know, it's, it's not just one, it's the three layers of the stack. I mean, that was one of my takeaways is it's a three part stack. And so it was, it was an interesting discussion. And, you know, when he, he mentioned that this is sort of like uh, the auto industry where you have, you know, it's not just car manufacturing or car assembly. It's all of those manufacturers that ultimately build the parts that then go into the car that then get assembled at the Ford plant and you got to have it all. And so that sort of resonated with me. So uh, hopefully it, you know, helped you guys to think through, you know, just what is this entire process? And as we think about how do we secure our technological base and modernize our pro- our weapon systems. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.